find yourself thinking that you're not good enough or that you're not lovable? Many people hide a dark side that they feel that if others knew their secrets, it would be detrimental to their relationships. It doesn't need to be that way at all. This is where words can't reach. Shedding light on our dark side with your host, Dr. Madeline DeLittle can help. It's time for a frank and open discussion about the things that are bothering us and say what needs to be said. Dr. DeLittle and her guest experts are here to help you understand and provide advice. Now, here is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Hello and welcome to Voice America Empowerment Channel. My name is Dr. Madeline DeLittle and you are listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. And I want to introduce you to um, Brian Mahan. Is that how I pronounce your name, Brian? That works, but Mahan is how... Mayhem, that's <laughs> Okay. I'll Brian, answer anything. <laughs> oh, my golly. We checked beforehand, but oh, well. Brian, you are, you've got a really different slant on shame, and I'm, um, you're going to talk about understanding the physiology, i.e. the body of shame, but the shame right. in the body and its role in developmental trauma, and that's, that's something, a topic we haven't really covered, so that's really going to be new for the listeners. Oh, but, awesome. But, yeah, so welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I want to tell the listeners a little bit about you first so that so they get a sense of, of um, uh, who you are. And it's when I read your bio, it's really interesting because you came at this as as a, as a, a sufferer, you, you describe it, as a sufferer from, from developmental trauma. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, in fact, you describe it as social anxiety, self-sabotage, self-loathing, shame, low self-esteem, depression. Whoa. And seven to ten. Yeah. (laughs) Holy moly. Seven to ten full-blown panic attacks. You've been there, done that. That, Did you get the T-shirt? I got the T-shirt, the bumper sticker, the baseball cap. Good grief. (laughs) A catastrophic car wreck you describe it as. Oh, my golly. But then you found something called somatic experiencing. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And it changed your life. Indeed. And that car wreck was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, that is often the case, isn't it, as the phoenix rises. <laughs> oh, why don't you take this away and, and tell us about, well, let's just start. Uh, maybe start with you and your catastrophic car wreck and then move into this, this experience okay. you had. Yeah, take it away. Well, you know, um, I'll start before the car wreck because that was kind of midlife, but um, early life. You know, I grew up in a in a very affluent household. Um, a, you know, great privilege, great education, big houses, big cars, nice clothes. You know, um, all of that. Um, mm. And yet, um, my parents had grown up in very different circumstances. And so my father had put himself through college and med school, and that's when he met my mom, my my wife. I'm sorry, his wife, my mom, and um, you know, and they began this life. And you know, with it came finances, and with it came moving into a different culture, a different social stratus. Mm-hmm. And they wanted us, me and my two brothers, to be well-bred, fifth-generation, blue-blooded children who knew all the social etiquette and how to, you know, behave like fine gentlemen, right? right? And so they didn't have that history. They didn't have that background. 
And so with the most loving of intention, they set out to mold us into what they thought would be you know, the, the most likely to be embraced by society. And what that looked like was my every thought, word, and action was course correction, course correcting. Everything I said, everything I did was course corrected. It was just never quite right. And what I learned from all of that and over time was that there wasn't anything right about me. There wasn't any good about me. I couldn't do anything right. That was the meaning so you made my, of it. That's the meaning I made of it. Right. right? And okay. kids do that. Kids yeah. don't know how to differentiate their behavior from right. their character. So when you comment on their character and you say, you know, you know, don't pick your nose, that's gross. What they hear is you're gross for picking mm-hmm. your nose. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, you know, I ultimately ended up growing up in the house of shame which I say is halfway between the House of Blues and the House of Pancakes. <laughs> and it taught me that my, you know, my best option for survival to be embraced and accepted, to, to not be kicked out and cast out, was to be still and quiet. Um, and so I learned how to disconnect and dissociate and shut down. Now, when I was one-on-one with people, I had another strategy, and that was to become a chameleon, because there wasn't anything good or right about me. I figured that if I became whoever I was with, that they would accept me and love me and, you know, um, welcome me into the tribe. Mm -hmm. But when I was around a group of people, I couldn't do that, so I had to become visible. So I spent most of my life, up until this car wreck, moving between uh, levels of comfort and and there was very little comfort (laughs) except for when I was alone or, you know, a certain level of comfort in being around my family just because, you know, I had, I had figured by then that they weren't going to cast me out. Um, But, you know, I wasn't so sure about that socially out in the world. And so I just became, you know, um, so quiet. And I mean, I had a, you know, I was flat, flat affect, I was dead behind the eyes. I had a whisper monotone voice. I didn't talk with my hands. I didn't have really kind of any emotional content. Um, you know, and you could literally walk up behind me with symbols and crash them and I wouldn't have even reacted. Oh, Brian. You know? Oh my God. And I, and I remember like going to movies and when people would laugh, I would think to myself, okay, remember that. That's what people think is funny. Well, you weren't even taking anything in. You weren't even responding. Yeah, I didn't have the reference point, right? Because I had, because I didn't have any sense of myself. There wasn't anything about me that I could use as a reference point because there wasn't anything about me that was good or knew how to do things right. And so I was just in a constant state of trying to figure out how to be like everyone else. So, oddly enough, because of this incredible skill set that I uh, developed, I became an actor because it was the one place where I could come alive, where emoting didn't come with consequence, it came with accolades. 
and I could step into a role and mm-hmm. get completely lost. And people thought, you know, I was amazing because they could would see the difference between the man off stage, off camera, and then what happened once I was on stage in front of the camera. And they were like, wow, these are two different human beings. And so I seemed like a really good actor. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it was it was me being able to get lost in the nuance of facial expression and tone of voice and mannerisms and how I held my body and how I walked. And, you know, so I was a, I was a, I was a character actor stuck in a leading man's body. Um, And so that was kind of confusing for the casting directors too, um, because I didn't know how to be myself on camera. I didn't know how to be myself on stage. You didn't have a self, did you? I didn't have a self. I didn't have a self. And so then I had this catastrophic car wreck and um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Los Angeles or if the listeners are. There's the 10 freeway, which is considered one of the busiest freeways in the country. And it was four nights before Christmas, 2003, December 21st. And um, I was driving, you know, in the number two lane. I had plenty of room in front of me in the car in front of me. I was going with the flow of traffic. I wasn't doing anything wrong. And then suddenly I heard the sound and something went flying by me in the number one lane. And as my body tried to orient to what was going on, right? So my eyes kind of shot to the number one lane to see what was that. And then I heard another sound coming up behind me and it was the sound of another uh, sports car. So the engine was just like, as it was trying to wind down and avoid me. Well, as it tried to avoid me, it clipped my back left bumper, which sent my car end over end, rolled three times across three lanes of traffic, slid on the driver's door 150 feet and crashed into a concrete wall. Oh, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It was, it was such an extraordinary experience oh. because my higher brain could not figure out what was going on, but my lower brain had already started taking care of me. So what I mean is, is that when I saw my dog, who was in the car with me, standing on the instrument panel of my car, I remember looking at her going, what? How are you standing on a vertical surface? You know, my higher brain Mm. didn't know I was in a car wreck, couldn't figure out what was happening. But the weird thing was, is that I was aware that I was super warm. The air in the car was really thick. I felt like there were arms around me holding me in place. And time had slowed way mm. down. So my lower brain had, had already figured out there was a problem when my higher brain didn't know what was going on. So needless to say, um, the entire experience was really kind of fascinating. And I don't know if we really want to take a whole lot of time on on the minutia of each moment of that car wreck, but it was really quite an extraordinary experience. And I walked away from it ultimately. Um, I was standing on the freeway when the police arrived and I was cutting jokes. Really? You walked away from it? I walked away from it. When I was hanging upside down... um, you know, in the car, it was filling full of smoke and, and people started rushing the car and they were trying to kick in the windshield. Uh, all the other glass was gone. 
<laughs> but they were busy trying to kick in the windshield. <laughs> so I had a, I had my dog out the back passenger window, and and then you know I kind of got myself out of the seatbelt and and crawled out. And um, I had a little road rash on my elbow and shoulder from where, um, you know, I was kind of dragged on the ground while I was sliding on the driver's door. Um, a little whiplash, but other than that, you know, no injuries. Um, so I thought. And then several days ago, several days, days later, I started having what I know now were panic attacks. But at the time, I didn't know they were panic attacks. And I didn't attribute it to the car wreck because I had walked away from the car wreck. Yeah, no physical injuries. Yeah, like I said, a little road rash. Um, a little whiplash and a little road rash. Um, so, you know, but I walked away and so I didn't think what was happening to me, all of this, these crazy sensations and experiences, you know, feeling like my heart was going to pound out of my chest and, you know, I couldn't breathe or I was gulping for air or, you know, I couldn't get enough air in or, you know, I mean, it was just everything. Mm -hmm. It was just so many different things that were happening. And ultimately I was just kind of for several days, I found myself laying in the middle of the living room floor in the fetal position, howling at the moon with the doors locked and the curtains drawn and the phones off because I was too afraid to let anyone know what was happening to me because I didn't want to get locked up. And I thought I was either going crazy or I had become possessed. And so after several days, I finally got the gumption to peel myself off the floor and make it across town and my chiropractor who was you know more than a chiropractor she was you know very well studied let's say um just a wall of certificates you know and um and i looked at her and i said i need a referral and she said okay what's going on and i said i need a, an exorcist and she looked at me and she's like honey what's going on <laughs> and I, I told her and she said oh i think what you need is a trauma specialist and I said, what's that? And she sent me to a somatic experiencing practitioner. Oh. And in three sessions, my panic attack stopped. And within two weeks, I was in the training. I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how it works. But of all the things I had done for 25 years to try to heal, I went to every workshop. I read every book, except for the one on self-sabotage that I never finished. I, uh, <laughs> I tried every I tried every pill potion and powder. I sat at the foot of gurus. I prayed. I meditated. I medicated. I yoga myself into a stupor. I did everything I could for 25 years to try to heal. And what was freaky about these panic attacks is that, and I think what really kind of set them off was that after my car wreck, I realized that all of my old negative cyclical thinking was back. All of my fears were back. All of my social anxiety was back. Everything I thought I had healed over the last 25 years was back and in spades. Mm -hmm. Like it had been progressing all of those years. And I was in a complete panic because I thought, oh my God, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars. I've tried hundreds of different healers and different modalities. And I thought things were helping and working, but look, it's all back. So obviously none of it actually worked. I must have just compartmentalized this stuff. And now what am I going to do? Because I've yeah. already tried everything, right? Yeah. And so I think that's where the panic ultimately came from, was just the despondency of, you know, I was broken beyond repair and there wasn't 
anything or anyone that was going to be able to help. And so I was just in a puddle of futility and hopelessness. So that was kind of my foray (laughs) into um, working with and understanding trauma. So in the three-year training program for somatic experiencing, you know, we look at trauma predominantly through the lens of physiology. Um, Dr. Peter Levine, who originated this work, um, was a double major at Berkeley. And if I remember correctly, it was in animal behavior and psychology. And he had kind of a eureka moment in working with a client and um, kind of put it together that animals in the wild have greater reason and more circumstances to become traumatized, and yet they're less likely to. And so he started looking at the biology and physiology. Of now, didn't, he wrote a book, didn't he, called Weakening oh, yeah. the Tiger? Uh-huh. That's his kind of primer, which is great for the layperson. And okay. then he also has In an Unspoken Voice, which mm-hmm. is more kind of his tome. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of, it's a little bit more clinical, a little bit, you know, denser um, academic. Um, and then he's co-authored um, other books on working with trauma and children and, and things like that. Um, so, but yeah, there's quite a, quite a few books, um, that he has either written or co-authored. Okay. So you went and and trained with him and his, um, in his method of working. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the work is taught in 125 countries and 25 languages. So it is, you know, now it's considered, you know, the world's foremost approach to working with trauma. Hmm. Um, and the difference is, is that we've changed the focus of the lens, right? So for instance, I had a client um, tell me just the other day that she was on a plane and sat next to a psychiatrist. And he was retired, but on his way to a symposium about psychiatry, and they were talking and he said, yeah, psychiatry's at a crossroads because there hasn't been any new developments. And his specialty was working with PTSD and they were finding that what they were doing wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And so approaching PTSD, anxiety, panic, trauma in general, and you know, we can throw developmental trauma in there too, um, but trying to fix and heal a physiological condition through intellectual perusal right. and medication. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, you can't talk your way out of trauma. <laughs> right. And so, you know, and not to say that the narrative isn't isn't important and, you know, there's a cognitive component to it and there's a psychological component to it, but it's more kind of what happens in the aftermath as we try to reframe Mm -hmm. and put things into perspective and gain some time, distance, and space from the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there is a psychological piece there because there's also beliefs that are formed around traumatic events. And ultimately, until those beliefs change, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and the problem is, is that traditional talk therapy tries to change those beliefs through um, cognitive gymnastics. Like you know, they're, they're, you know, if we can just reframe it, if we can put it in a different perspective, if we can you know talk about it in a different way, then um, you know there's some sort of shift there. And yeah, there can be shift, but not healing because trauma is cyclical. And it goes dormant. It's like having a landmine. 
and it's buried under the surface. And every now and then, someone or something comes along to apply pressure to the trigger, and all the symptoms come up, and you know the cycle begins again. Is it? And, can I? Is it that trauma is always in the is in the present? If it's not, if it's not, um, if it's not transformed, is that right? It trauma stays as if it's happening in the present. <clears throat> Well, when when it gets triggered and resurfaces, it certainly is experienced in the present. Okay. But we can go through yeah. periods of time where um, you know we can be asymptomatic and think it's all behind us, mm-hmm. and then something you know, and then something happens, and we may not even know what the trigger is, mm-hmm. but something triggers this old wound, and the old wound comes to the surface, and what we have a tendency to do because you know this is where we kind of track reenactments and patterns in people's lives and habituations. Um, you know, if there is a habituation or reenactment, um, more than likely there is an original wound that set the reenactment up. Because when we have a wounding experience, we form beliefs around that situation or that kind of person or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the circumstances were. And that belief is on the one hand there to keep us safe in the future, to help us you know, scan the horizon to make sure that if we ever face that kind of danger again, then we can use the defenses and coping mechanisms that we formed around that original wounding experience to manage and cope with it. But better yet, maybe we could avoid it entirely if we can, you know, see it on the horizon before it becomes a problem. So Mm -hmm. we go into a state of hypervigilance where we're in a constant state of scanning the horizon for anything and everything that can go wrong, right? But well, the irony is, is that quantum physics and mechanics teaches us that we have a tendency to find what we're looking for. <laughs> right. And so when we're scanning it to avoid it, we're actually scanning it to find it. And then, lo and behold, we get triggered. The old wound comes to the surface. And now we're behaving disproportionately to the current circumstance mm-hmm. because we've got this historical charge in our nervous system that's been you know, activated and brought to the surface. So, in order to change that belief, ultimately what we have to do is have reparative and corrective experiences around the present day circumstance, but we also have to track that back to the original wound and work with that wound's physiology, the dysregulation, discordance in the nervous system that's in a holding pattern. Because if we look at the only difference between stress and trauma, so, you know, an event for one person can be stressful, can be traumatic for another. Why is that? It's as simple as if one person's nervous system is able to go into arousal, find its natural peak, discharge that energy of arousal, reorganize and return to homeostasis or resilience, then that event was stressful. If for any reason that nervous system spike and resolution doesn't complete, then we consider that event. Traumatic. And that is the essence of this work, is it not? It's this. Exactly. It's the discharging of this of the of that the impact on, uh, on the nervous system. Exactly. So there's like you know if you think about it like a short circuit in a nervous in a, an electrical system, mm. right? And so it's getting that that short circuit to unwind and reorganize so that the energy can move freely through the nervous system again. I, I relate it to the broken record, but uh, most of my clients haven't I, any clue about what a record is. So it's, <laughs> it's all a bit moot. Anyway, we, we, we've got a couple of minutes before break. So just just let's finish 
what what this um, this so, you know, experiencing yes. is. So what I how I would tie this into um, shame specifically and developmental trauma. Shame is ubiquitous. It's in every single culture and every single tribe since the beginning of time, because it's a human experience. It's part of our biology and physiology of social engagement. Mm. We're tribal creatures. And in order for there to be tribe, there has to be rules of law and social mores and way and means and ways of engagement. Mm. And so shame is used to socialize children and to protect the tribe. And my parents had socialized me through shame. And they did that in an effort to protect the tribe. But there's, so there's healthy shame and not so healthy it's, shame. Is not? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So healthy shame we want. We don't want to get rid of shame entirely because healthy shame serves us. Mm-hmm. But it's the toxic shame of what happens with children when they can't differentiate between the behavior and themselves they begin to form the beliefs, I'm wrong, I'm bad, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm no good, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm different, I'm other, and therefore, I'm unlovable. Mm, that's a, such a burden. Mm-hmm. So, and so that's, that's developmental, you know, that's how shame works in the developmental period of our lives. But then when we come back, you know, I'll talk about the biology and physiology of what happens in the shaming experience on a human animal level, you know, that's illogical, irrational, because it's not higher brain function, it's lower brain function. And it's a survival strategy, and it's a coping mechanism. And so um, I don't know where we are on time, but I do yeah, know that we have that, to take a break. That's, so. Yeah, that's fantastic, Brian. It really, this is really getting literally d- deep and right down into the body rather than just... Um, talking about it and I also if you can after the break give the listeners some sort of ideas of ideas of what to take away sort of some advice or something so that they so you know this is you know because this sounds like you'd have to go and see some kind of um, expert that can can help somebody with this well you know there's a there was a study done that shows that when we're in any kind of healing process whether it's interpersonal or intrapersonal when we have a healthy attachment figure going through the process with us, the chances of the healing increase from 24% to 87%. So yes, there's stuff that we can do on our own. And then there's um, the benefit of having someone walk with us. All right, let's go to break and uh, we'll be back in a minute. We're listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. And uh, when we come back, we'll have more from Brian. Thanks, Brian. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want to know more about how to work with children and adults to transform shame, depression, loss, and anxiety, order Dr. DeLittle's book, Where Words Can't Reach, Neuroscience and the Satire Model in the Sand Tray. The book is available online from Dr. DeLittle's website, wherewordscannotreach.com. Dr. DeLittle also conducts workshops and can come to your workplace or organization. 
If you wish to have Dr. Belittle come and do a two-day workshop on an introduction to neuroscience and sit here in the sand tray, please contact her at mbelittle at gmail.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned in to where words can't reach, shedding light on our dark side. We'd love to hear from you with any stories, suggestions, or questions by sending an email to mthelittle at gmail.com. Here again is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Hello and welcome back to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on a Dark Side. Our guest, My guest today is Brian Mayhem and he, we're talking about the physiology of shame. And um, so, Brian, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, we, um, we're we just get, just getting into this uh, this um, this work that you do. So just carry on from, from where we left off in terms of somatic experiencing and the body. Okay. Well, you know, um, I'll, so yes, there are certainly uh, – benefits of working somatically with shame. Now, um, you know, I work with shame somatically, cognitively, in the imaginal realm and in the interpersonal realm. Um, And we really have to kind of work on all four realms Mm -hmm. to really fully shift and and move someone from toxic shame into healthy shame. Um, So, let's talk first about what happens biologically and physiologically when we're in the experience of being shamed. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that happens is our minds become scrambled. And some research shows that when we're in the experience of shame, we lose 30 intelligence points. Then our larynx constricts to stop us from saying whatever we were saying. Our body has become immobilized either through bracing or collapse to stop us from doing whatever we were doing. This is the freeze response, right? This is the shame freeze response. Shame freeze, yeah. Okay. And in the shame freeze response, it is a defense mechanism. It's a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. Because as children, we're 100% dependent upon other. And usually it's the other that's shaming us. We don't come into the world, we come into the world with the ability to feel shame. We don't come into the world in shame. It's not like original sin. Um, it comes from the outside world. And so we're, so our, our sources of life, that those who are supposed to feed us, nurture us, protect us, provide us with safety and pleasure are the very ones who were, uh, who are shaming us. And our fear is the breaking of the interpersonal bridge. Right. So to preserve the interpersonal bridge, our bodies shut us down. So so if this happens on a consistent and regular basis, then you can certainly see how someone might move into a holding pattern 
of being stuck in the freeze where it's difficult to speak, difficult to, to express themselves physically, and difficult to think, right? So if you think about those times when somebody asks you a simple question and, and you know, suddenly you can't think of a, you can't complete a sentence and yeah. you start trembling and you feel your face going flush, well, this is the physiology of shame. The shame is, you know, oh my God, what if I don't give the right answer? What if I don't say it properly? And so your physiology starts shutting everything down to protect you because the fear not only is of the breaking of the interpersonal bridge, but the fear is also of being cast out of the tribe. And, you know, human beings are the only animals that are 100% dependent on other for 25% of their life. Unless you're a millennial, then 30 or 40% of your life. But, um, <laughs> but you know, so, so it's life and death importance that we maintain these relational attachments. Literally, our lives depend on it. And so we will take it on. Children will deify their parents and have a difficult time seeing their parents' flaws because if their parents are flawed, they're less likely to survive. It's a survival instinct. In, indeed. And even if, you know, even in a, in a horrible situation where, let's say, you know, the child is on the witness stand in court in an abuse case, the child often will lie and say, mommy never hurt me. I love my Oh, mom. yeah. Yeah. That's my experience. Just because there's that biological yeah. drive yeah. got to protect this relationship. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, so that's the biology and physiology, ultimately, you know, of the experience of feeling the shame. Um, and then how that plays out over time is really where things start building up. Because what we do is we form a part of ourselves that becomes the inner police or the inner critic that will shame ourselves out of saying things and doing things or not saying things or not doing things before someone else has a chance to shame us. So even when we're not getting the shame from the outside world, we're shaming ourselves because we're trying to maintain those relational attachments and maintain those, you know, those areas of social engagement to be, you know, to be able to remain in the tribe. And so this inner critic over time, as it continues to build, you know, all of these messages that it's getting from the outside world of what's wrong and what's not, you know, not perfect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it can, it, it morphs into, and can morph into um, self-loathing and what we call all pervasive toxic shame. I've not, not heard that before that we would actually, uh, do it. Uh, what do you say? Someone, sorry, in a critic so, so, that we would do it before someone else does it. Yes, yeah. that was that was one of my main social survival strategies. Is I was so extraordinarily self-deprecating. I would cut myself down so that no one else. Could. I see. Yes, it's better that be, you do it first. Yeah. yeah, and then I could turn it into humor. And I, you know, and I could try to, you know, put other people at ease because they wouldn't have to feel uncomfortable around my flaws because I shed the light on them and, and called myself out on them. 
that you, that would that would appear like you're confident and you can you can be vulnerable and you're confident. Right. But in fact, underneath, they're just a, a big mess, a big <laughs> big big six foot three two hundred pound mess. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm not laughing at, at you. I, I, it's just a brilliant survival way of surviving, is it not? Yeah, Socially, absolutely, absolutely. But the irony is, is that we have four main reactions to shame attack other, attack self, withdraw, and deny. And so on the one hand, we're in terror of being cast out, but one of our reactions is to withdraw. We're afraid of breaking the interpersonal bridge, but one of our defenses would be to attack other. Now, when we talk about attack self, then that's obviously the inner critic. Yes. And, yeah. then, and then there's deny, which is the rationalization of, oh, it's not that big a deal. She didn't really mean it. I can handle this. Oh, it's deny not, what? Right. Deny other people, what other people are saying? Exactly. Okay. You know, or, yeah. or that, or that you, know, um, you know, they didn't really mean it. It's okay. They were just joking. Right. But we still have taken that in and that, you know, that barb has, mm-hmm. you know, um, has, has, has pierced our wound, yeah. Yeah. you know, and remains there. Yeah. Right. And then um, part of deny can also be to cling and fawn. So, you know, um, we can be in the shame experience um, and then cling and fawn on our shamer because we're so desperate to maintain that relational connection. So it's safer to do that, to sort of move befriend, into the, befriend the bully or whatever it is. Exa- so that, exactly. exactly. But when you attack other, that's, that's much, more, um, much more likely to get you kicked out, is it not? But, well, that's, that's what's interesting, you know, is that some of these, some of our, survival strategies um, are good on one hand and can be problematic on the other. But when we're looking in the realm of healthy shame, we can still have these kinds of reactions. We can, in healthy shame, we can withdraw momentarily from the situation and reassess Mm. what's happening and gain some clarity and maybe a little time and distance and then we can re-engage from a more conscious, conscientious place. Right. Yeah. Right. But when it's toxic shame, the tendency is to, to isolate and separate. And then the defense of feeling so isolated and separated would be to attack other, meaning I didn't like them anyway. They don't have good morals. You know, they're mean people, or they're uneducated, or they're this, or they're that, you know. And mm. so we're justifying our withdrawal mm. by attacking the other. So it doesn't necessarily mean attack other means that we are, you know, tooth and, you know, tooth and nail, or, you know, right. um, physical attack. Right. Um, it, it could be just a way that we, you know, are internally attacking the mm-hmm. other, the group. So I don't want to be a part of that group anyway. Right. All right. right. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. So <clears throat> how does this continue? Tell me how it just continues. Like it, like it doesn't 
How do we stop this cycle? Well, so here's the thing. Any developmental trauma, and, you know, shame is predominantly developmental trauma, although shame never stops. You know, once you start start focusing your lens to shame finding, you find it everywhere. It's not just in malicious, mean statements that people make. It can be in the raising of an eyebrow, in a sound like t- or yeah right all that dismissing Um, exactly it can be uh it can be the you know the turning of the back of a hand to someone or the Mm. palm of the hand to someone right so i mean you know we're shaming each other all the time look at humor i mean my god you know so much humor is shame based so shame is happening all the time but if we you know if we go back and we just look at you know um the developmental trauma piece and the shame there um you know, what do, you know, what do we do with that? Well, it's all about repair. It's all about, you know, when we're working with shame, when we're helping people, you know, when I'm helping people heal their shame, um, there's a lot of counter-shaming. Um, there's, so there might be a lot of psych education, you know, psychological education and that kind of thing to help people understand what's really happening and it's not their fault. And, you know, and even though their parents weren't bad people, they behaved badly, you know, those kinds of things just to kind of help the client gain some optimal distance from the shame um, and, you know, be able to reassess and put things, um, you know, into a different perspective, but also deal with and feel into um, this, you know, shame response that, that comes to the surface, you know, as we go into our stories and talk about our pasts and that kind of thing. Okay. But, um, you know, healing shame is about restoring the interpersonal bridge because the interpersonal bridge between that person and their primary caretakers, their siblings, their teachers, their coaches, their friends, you know, all the, all the people that have been shaming their, all their, their lives, um, you know, there, it's, it's been stressors on the interpersonal bridge. And so we have to focus on rebuilding a sense of safety in the interpersonal bridge. And that happens in the therapeutic practice between the practitioner and the client. So we can get the sense of it starting there so that they can then, you know, begin to move that out into their lives, into their other relationships. And it doesn't mean necessarily going back and repairing it directly with the, the, sh- the shaming caregiver. Well, you know, it can, I mean, if we have that opportunity, you know, I just went on, uh, I just got back from a 10-day trip to Sicily, and I now know what it's like to visit Sicily as an 82-year-old woman, because I went with the shamer-in-chief. I went with my mom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, she knows we, that title. Does she know about no, this? Of course not, and she'll never hear this interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know... We had a very distant and acrimonious relationship for decades, you know, and I kept the door open and I kept, the, you know, making the forays to try to have the repair and try to have the repair and try to have the repair. And finally, on her 80th birthday, something happened and a shift occurred. And so for the last two years, we have been repairing. Mm. And it hasn't been conscious, direct let's talk about this event and that event. And remember when you did this and you said that, and this is the way it made me feel. And, you know, we didn't have to, you know, we, we weren't doing that. What we were doing in 10 days and we were together 24 
Stab and oh, I think there's the an award for that. Room. There's an, a medal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 24-7 with anybody. <laughs> that was challenging. But what we did was hang out and chat and play cards yes. and go for a walk and take a tour and enjoy a meal. We didn't process. We didn't get into a bunch of stuff. I just held the space for her to be who she is, where she is, and showed up where I am, how I am. Right now. So that she could get a sense yeah. of who yeah. that is. Yeah. Right. And so it was an extraordinarily healing experience and an extraordinary healing experience around the shame. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I have to say that just in general, you know, because I kind of started doing this deep dive into shame four years ago when I took, you know, Brett Lyon and Sheila Rubin's uh, training on working effectively with shame. I never had the word. I never had the language for it. And when I heard that word and I understood its context, it was like a Helen Keller moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. You know, and everything began to shift and change. And, you know, I dedicated myself to these trainings, even though they were in Berkeley and I was in L.A., I flew up every single weekend. And I did for four years, even though the training, is, you know, can be done in about a year's time because it's eight modules. But after, you know, I was about two-thirds of the way through the training, I pulled Brett and Sheila aside and I said, you guys need an assistant and that's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> and then after a couple of years of assisting them, I said, you guys need somebody to carry on your legacy and to continue to teach your work. And that's going to be me <laughs> because nothing wow. has informed me. You found your voice. I did. I did. And nothing's informed me personally. I mean, somatic experiencing was a game changer, life changer for me. Understanding shame and healing shame is exponential return on the investment to what the somatic experiencing was. Um, and so the way that it has changed me as a human being and the way that I show up in my relationships with strangers and friends and family and lovers, is a com- it's just a completely different world. And the way that it's informed my practice, my clients get better so much more quickly because shame binds the past to the present. Yeah. And there's, you know, shame is the underpinning of every emotion. Shame binds grief to the present. So, you know, shame is this underlying force that no one has really understood or talked about. You know, it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't until recently even a part of the curriculum in the traditional study of psychology. No, no. It wasn't until Brune Brown came along that shame started to enter into the vernacular. And I love Brene Brown, and I think she's tremendous, and I, I love her personality, and I love the way she presents, and she's got a great sense of humor and, you know, all of that. But she also is just cognitive. Mm-hmm. And working with it cognitively is helpful, but it's only part of what we need to do. We need to work with it somatically. And I... And I- I don't have much time with you, Brian, but I really want to know about the imagination that you mentioned. 
Because that's my right. realm of work. Totally. Right. So the imaginal realm. So if you imagine right now walking up to a lemon tree and grabbing a lemon off the branch and feeling that branch tug as you free it, you know, from the branch. Mm-hmm. And there's that waxy, yellow, mottled, mm. thick skin and weight in your hand. And now imagine ripping it in half and feeling all that juice <laughs> rolling down your wrist. And now I got it, I got half it. of it in your mouth. Shove <laughs> half of it in your mouth and chew it up right now. Right? What's happening? Oh, I'm just mouth- cringing because it's so sour. It's so- You're cringing. Is your mouth yeah. watering? Um, slightly, yeah. 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 I mean, your it's so evocative. Brain, yeah. Your lower brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. Nope. Uh, right. So here's an exa- here's another example. I don't know how much time we have, and I don't want to. Uh, yeah, Karen, how are, we're we're going to have, Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, Peter Levine was working with, and I believe it was Peter Levine. I've told this story for so long, and it's been so many years. I, I hope I'm sourcing it properly. But my, my, my recollection is, is that Peter Levine was working with a rather elderly gentleman who had been a lifetime insomniac and had been to every sleep institute and hooked up like a lab rat and tried every pill, potion, and powder, and nothing helped his insomnia. So we've seen Peter Levine, and they're tracking sensation in the body, which we call implicit memory. Yes. And that elicited an explicit memory of this man being at the dinner table when he was a little boy. His father was reading the newspaper and suddenly slams the newspaper with his fist down on the table, scaring the bejesus out of the little boy and his mother. And his father looks at his wife with desperation and terror. And he said, those bleepity bleep Germans are going to be at our back door by morning. Right. This little boy overheard a false statement that was not based in reality, but he formed a belief that morning was dangerous because the boogeyman was going to be at the back door in the morning, so his nervous system went into hypervigilance every night. Yeah, yeah. So if we can be traumatized in the imaginal realm, we, we can, can use the imagination as a way to heal. Oh, because exactly. again, yes. the lower brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. Right. So we can go in, in the imaginal realm, as long as we anchor it into the body, as long as we're with the client asking the questions, as you see this, as you think that, as you hear those sounds, whatever is happening in the imaginal realm for them, what do you notice happening in your body? How and where do you feel that in your body? We have to keep anchoring it in so yeah. that they have the full experience of the imaginal realm, that it's not just a cognitive mm. visual image. It's a experiential process. I think you've just summed up the work that I do, which is this connection with little figurines in a sand tray. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it does the same thing. When, they, when, I, when, when you look at this, these, these images that you put in the sand tray, what happens in your body, that's exactly, exactly the work that we do too. So it's sort of the, this, this same road. Well, we've got several yeah. roads all leading to Rome, which is this connection between um, the, the cognitive piece, the imaginative piece, the body, and then, and what the one interpersonal, other? The interpersonal relationship. Right, that's right, yeah. So let's have some takeaways. We've got just a couple of minutes here. Um, is there anything else that uh, you want to leave the listener with? Well, you know, I just, I'd circle back to where we kind of left on the break that, yes, 
there are things that you can do on your own that can be extraordinarily resourceful. Right. You can read the right books. You can take some seminars. You can, you know, do the exercises and practices and that kind of thing. Um, but we're dealing with the underpinning of every traumatic event because wherever there's trauma, wherever there, you know, even a car wreck, there's shame that we have as a result of the car wreck, right? Mm-hmm. So shame is an underpinning of all of this. Shame is a, is, is, a, is a major player in the formation of who we are. So shame informs how we see ourselves, the world, other people in it, and our relationship to them. So shame forms our personality, it forms our defense mechanisms, our survival strategies, our coping mechanisms, the ways that we self-soothe and self-regulate, the way that we interact and engage or don't with other people. Shame is just this, you know, is this kind of like sticky, multi-tentacled, you know, (laughs) monster that's, you know, that's that's kind of like, you know, it's like it's it's a web, right? That's all pervasive (laughs) in our entire experience. And so extricating all of that, you know, um, it's not as huge of an undertaking as I'm making it sound. Yeah, it sounds impossible. Um, But but it's it's more likely that you'll get greater results more quickly when you're working with someone who knows what they're doing and how to work with shame effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know... um, I understand that not everybody has the resources to be able to work with someone, but there are, you know, resources out there that where you can at least begin and start the journey and do the intrapersonal work, you know, and perhaps in time be able to find and work with someone to, to do the, you know, the final brush up and the last, the last bits that need to be attended to. Um, and, and, uh, uh, I just got tapped on the shoulder. Something really weird just happened. Woo. Um, uh, no, nobody's here. Um, just completely threw me off. Yeah. So, so not to, to be aware. Awareness is really the first step, is it not? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So once you start becoming aware of what shame feels like in your body, how and where you feel it. Mm. Once you start to become aware of um, where shame is showing up in your world and life, perhaps around you, right? You know, sometimes it's easier to, to witness, right? Yeah. Wow, that mother just shamed her child. Wow, that teacher just shamed the student. Wow, that student just shamed the teacher. We just have to, we have to start with that awareness. Right. Brian, thank you. We've got to we've got to end this session now. But thank oh. you so much. This has been <laughs> fascinating. And uh, I wish we had more time, but we don't. And uh, so we're going to have to say goodbye. And oh, such um, a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. So thank you've you. been listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on a Dark Side with Brian Mayhem. And um, tune in next week to hear more about shame and how to free yourself from it and for all for now thanks bye bye thank you for listening this week to where words can't reach shedding light on our dark side with Dr. Madeline DeLittle 
Please join us for another edition of the program next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.